You'd be helped if you keep your Bibles open to the page uh, that was read for us from Exodus chapter 12. This past year, I learned a new word, polyamory. Not necessarily a word that I'll suggest teaching to the students who come for ESL classes. But let me quote briefly from a Christian writer on this word. Polyamory is the new sexual revolution coming your way. The word itself is a conjunction of poly, meaning many, and amor, meaning love. By definition, polyamory is a state of being romantically involved with more than one person at the same time. And then the writer goes on to say, polyamory is on the rise. Advocates of polyamory claim that monogamy needlessly limits a person's romantic and sexual experiences, leading to disappointment, resentment, and heartbreak. And singleness, on the other hand, is thought to be a life sentence of loneliness. So polyamory advertises greater personal, sexual, and romantic satisfaction than biblical marriages or singleness. This is false advertising, end quote. I think the author is absolutely right. But my concern, my bigger concern this morning is not polyamory per se, but spiritual polyamory. Welcome to Christ the King. We take a break this week from the sermon series on the book of Hebrews, and we will continue instead with a series that we started over summer, where we looked at a theme from a passage in the Bible, and then see how that theme unfolds throughout the Bible. And you'll be able to see that despite the fact that the Bible really is a library of 66 books, that there's a consistent unity throughout from start to finish. The title of our sermon this morning is Thinking About Exodus, not the book, but the event. And I hope by the end of this sermon that you'll not just be better informed about Israel's exodus from Egypt, but also how the exodus theme serves as a paradigm, a motif for God's redemption plan for all of us and what implication that might have for us today. As we'll be covering a fair bit of ground, I will be moving at a slightly faster pace than we usually do, and so forgive me if you feel that you're drinking from the fire hydrant. So, please turn with me to the passage in Exodus 12, which is just read, page 50 for those with the regular black Bible, and 60 for the large print Bibles. Well, first the context. And for the context, I need to go back to Genesis 12, the book just before Exodus. And there in Genesis 12, you see as part of God's plan to rescue our fallen world, God chose one man, Abraham, and made a covenant with him. And God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants and they would become a great nation. God also promised Abraham a land where his people would be able to settle in. Canaan was the promised land. And Abraham was blessed for one reason, so that he can be a blessing to others. Abraham's wife, Sarah, at an old age, bore him a son, Isaac. And Isaac's son was Jacob, who in turn had 12 sons. And one of them, Joseph, was, uh, got sold by his brothers because they didn't like him very much. And Joseph ended up in Egypt. But by God's intervention, Joseph was able to interpret the dream of Pharaoh, and saved Egypt from a devastating famine. And as a result of that, he rose from being a prisoner to becoming the prime minister of Egypt. And in the meantime, 
the famine hit Canaan. And, and because Jacob's sons had to go down to Egypt to get grain, Joseph and his father, and in fact, in the rest of the family, got reunited. And Jacob and his family of 70 now then moved to settle to Egypt. And that's where the book of Exodus starts. And there you have a new Pharaoh at the start of Exodus, the book. A new Pharaoh with no knowledge at all of Joseph's contribution and decided that the large and growing number of Israelites would pose a threat to Egypt uh, should they gang up with an enemy when they're attacking Egypt. And so he started oppressing Israel, making them slaves and putting them into forced labor. And when that didn't stop the growth of the Israelites, the Pharaohs started to kill their baby boys. And then we are told at the end of Exodus chapter 2 that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And what was God's rescue plan? Well, he sent Moses to lead them out of Egypt. But of course, Pharaoh would refuse to let the people of Israel go. And so this was shaping up to become a fight, a contest between the God of Moses and the Pharaoh of Egypt. And what God did was that he sent one plague after another to help persuade the Pharaoh to change his mind. And the pattern would be the same. God would, through Moses, would send a plague. Pharaoh would give in and agree to let the people go. And then Moses would call off the plague and then the Pharaoh would change his mind after the plague has been removed. And then God would send another plague. And this goes on for nine times. And now God was about to send his tenth plague. And this tenth plague would result in the death of the firstborn, child and cattle in all of Egypt. Israel will also suffer the consequence of this last plague unless they sacrifice the Passover lamb. And at the beginning of chapter 12, God gave instructions to Moses on how the sacrifice of the Passover lamb should be carried out. And our passage this morning picks up from Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. From verse 21 onwards, we see Moses essentially carrying out God's instructions. The elders of Israel were called and told to have each household kill the Passover lamb that they have set aside previously. This was a lamb that was to be without blemish, a male and a year old. And after slaughtering it, they were to take a bunch of hyssop and, and dip it into the blood and touch the lintel and the two doorposts. And then the flesh of the lamb was to be roasted and eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The family was to stay indoor during this time. Do all this, Moses tells them, and when the destroyer comes, the firstborn of every household shall live. You can see all the symbolism in this, can't you? The blood on the doorpost served as a sign that judgment had already fallen on that house, but it fell on the Passover lamb. Israel's firstborn would be spared. But that's not because Israel was innocent, but it's because the substitute has taken its place. And apart from the blood of the Passover lamb, Israel would have been guilty, just like Egypt. Because like Egypt, Israel was sinful. But the Passover lamb on that night of the Exodus also served as a signpost pointing the way forward that God would take to remove the judgment from us today. We too are sinful. We who are living in 21st century Toronto are no different 
from the Egyptians or the people of Israel. They were sinful humans deserving of judgment. But God has provided a means of rescue again. And this time he's, he, he does it through Jesus. And that's why John the Baptist uh, in the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 29, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I'm jumping ahead. Let's come back to our story in Exodus 12. Well, that night, all Egypt mourned. Because at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. Livestock were not spared as well. And so in every home in the land of Egypt, there was a dead body. Either a dead lamb in the home of the people of Israel or a dead son in the home of the Egyptians. And you can almost imagine the uproar, the hysteria, the pandemonium. Uh, While well, Pharaoh summoned Moses urgently and, and in verse 1, he tells them, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. Now you need to recognize that this is total capitulation. Because this is the same Pharaoh who said in, to Moses in Exodus chapter 5 verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover I will not let Israel go. This same Pharaoh now asked Moses to take the people of Israel and go. And he now asked Moses for a blessing. But don't be fooled. It's always easier to ask for a blessing than to ask for forgiveness. This Pharaoh is not repentant one bit. And we know that because two chapters later on, in chapter 14, Pharaoh is regretting letting them go. But this night, it wasn't just a Pharaoh. The Egyptians were eager for the people of Israel to leave as well. In fact, they were so eager that they gave the people of Israel everything they asked for. Silver, gold, clothing. In fact, verse 36 tells us that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. The word used here is plundered. And while there's some debate over exactly how many people left Egypt at night, the plain reading of the passage in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, tells us that besides women and children, 600,000 men left. Well, if you include the women and children, there would be easily over 2 million, which is quite a huge number. Just slightly less than perhaps the population of Toronto. Give or take a few hundred thousand. So can you imagine the population of Toronto walking on Highway 401 towards Ottawa? Now that's the magnitude of the exodus of the people uh, of Israel leaving. I'm not too sure why you want to go to Ottawa, but it's a separate story. But what might often be overlooked is the following verse. Verse 38, which tells us that, that a mixed multitude also went with them. See, God's plan to rescue the people wasn't limited only to the people of Israel. Right from the start, Gentiles were also very much part of God's plan. And in verse 39, we get introduced to the concept of fast food for the first time. You see, in their hurry to leave Egypt, the Israelites had no time even to wait for the dough to rise. They were only able to bring along baked unleavened cakes of dough. And so the people of Israel left Egypt. And we know from the following chapters that God led the people of Israel in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's as if they've been given a, a GPS and a torch uh, to show them the route to take as they leave uh, Egypt. 
And when, in fact, Pharaoh started pursuing them with his chariots just before they, uh, they reached the Red Sea. And when they had the Red Sea, what did God do? Oh, come on, you guys will know that, right? He got parted the Red Sea for the people of Israel to walk across. And then he closed it when Pharaoh's army was crossing it, killing all of them. And so God liberated the people of Israel from the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now what does the story of Israel's exodus have to do with the rest of the Bible? Apart from being really a very nice story about how God rescued the people of Israel, what significance does it hold for us today? Well, the answer is simply this. You'll find that this exodus paradigm, this motif, doesn't go away in the Bible. In fact, what I'd like to do in, in the remaining time is to show that in the New Testament, we will see Jesus coming to lead the people of God in a new exodus. We see that in the Gospel, we see that in the Epistles. And so Christians in the first centuries were clear, very clear that they were part of a new exodus. And so should we. All of us here today who call ourselves Christians are living in the midst of this new exodus. And it will have important implications for us today as it did for the Christians back then. Well, take the Gospels for instance. You'll find many similarities between Moses' exodus story and Jesus' uh, nativity stories. For instance, both started with Israel being oppressed by a foreign power. You have the birth of a male child and a ruler uh, who is killing uh, baby boys. And then when Jesus' public ministry started, there's the baptism by John the Baptist, just like Israel going through the Red Sea. And this is followed by 40 days of temptation in the wilderness for Jesus, just as G Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. And do you remember the transfiguration? Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 28. It's on page 814 of your Black Bible and 960 in a large print Bible. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 31. And let me read that for you. Now about eight days after these sayings, he, as in Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountains to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking to him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You may think that the word departure here in verse 31 would have been used to describe Jesus as in, to, as in how he would depart from this world, how he would be crucified and, and then he'll die and, and be resurrected and ascended into heaven. But what's interesting here is that the Greek word that's used here for departure is literally the word exodus. The very same Greek word that was used in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 22 where we read, By faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Jesus and Moses and Elijah we're talking about Jesus' exodus. Jesus, by his death, life, death, and resurrection, is leading his people 
in an exodus, a new exodus, just as Moses had done. And this would be a new exodus to rescue people who are slaves, slaves to sin, people like us. And it's not just the gospel. We see the exodus motif in the epistles as well. Peter, in his uh, epistle in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, uh, he says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul describes Christ as our Passover lamb. And in a Hebrews 3 passage, uh, which was preached last week, and we'll continue with that uh, uh, next Sunday, it's about first century Christians in the midst of the New Exodus, where the author, the pastor, is writing to urge them, this, this uh, Christians, not to be like the people of Israel during the Exodus. Today, we, the people of God, are part of the New Exodus, following a new leader, Jesus. Now, what then are the implications of this? What does it mean to be part of this new exodus? In particular, what can we learn from the people of Israel about what is the biggest danger to people who are part of the new exodus? And for that, we look at our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that was read for us earlier. Page 900 on the Black Bible and 1059 for the large print Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 900 and 1059. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. And some of the Christians in the church at Corinth were participating in the sacrificial meals in the pagan temples. They were eating food offered to idols. Now, we didn't have this part of the chapter read earlier, but, but verse 21 sums up Paul's argument. He's basically telling the Christians in Corinth, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of eat demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And to support his argument, Paul starts off in chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, to list out what were some of the similarities between the people of Israel and the Corinthian Christians. And he makes two points. Well, firstly, Paul reminds them that the people of Israel were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Symbolically, they were baptized into Moses. Now, that phrase, baptized into Moses, meant that they were placing themselves under the leadership of Moses. And so were the Christians in Corinth. They were baptized into Christ, into Jesus, placing themselves under the leadership of uh, Jesus. And then secondly, the second point, the people of Israel ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. And by this, Paul meant that their food and drink were provided supernaturally by God. And so did the Christians at Corinth. They ate the spiritual food, the bread of the communion, and, and they drank the spiritual drink, the wine at communion. And so like the people of Israel under Moses, the Christians in Corinth received many privileges. Baptism, Holy Communion. But their privileges, however, have led them to become presumptuous of God's goodness. Now, can you identify with that? Do you know of people who will tell you that they're Christians because they've been baptized as an infant and because they take communion when they come to church a few times in a year, especially during Easter and Christmas? 
and you know their faith, their Christian faith has little or no bearing at all on their lives the other 363 days. But nevertheless, they are very confident that they are Christians. Now, if that describes you or someone else that you know, may I suggest that that might be exactly the kind of presumptuous thinking that infected the people of Israel and the church at Corinth. And what does Paul say about that in verse 5? With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's probably one of the biggest understatements in the Bible. Because what actually happened is that a whole generation of people who left Egypt, the whole generation never stepped into the promised land. Except for two persons, Joshua and Caleb. That whole generation died in the wilderness, never to see the promised land. God was certainly not pleased. And so you might ask, what's wrong with presumptuousness? Well, simply put, their presumptuousness led to idolatry. And idolatry is a serious problem for the people of God. And that's why someone said idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. And Paul writes in verse 7, Do not be idolatrous as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul refers to this incident that was recorded for us in Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. What happened was Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai. He's meeting God, getting instructions on how to build a tabernacle, and he's receiving the Ten Commandments. And in the meantime, at the base of the mountain, the people of Israel are melting down the gold that they got from the Egyptians to make a golden calf. And in Exodus chapter 32, verse 4, they said, to the people of Israel, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then we are told, They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offering and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that's the passage that Paul was quoting from in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now I just want to explain that this was not some harmless you know, kid in the playground sort of sit down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The NIV, the New International Version, probably captures the sense better. Instead of play, it says they eat and drink and roast up to indulge in pagan revelry. What's happening here is there's an orgy going on among the people of Israel. Pretty much part of the idol worship ritual. I want to make a slight digression here, an observation. Isn't it interesting that the same goal that God provided the Israelites from the Egyptians when they left Egypt, the same goal, this gift from God, were used to build the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, as well as to build the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 36. We need to be careful how we use God's gift to us. And because of their worship of the golden calf, 3,000 men were put to death that day. Idolatry is a problem. But what is the essence of idolatry? I believe it was John Calvin who said, the human heart is an idol factory. We're manufacturing idols all the time. 
But what is an idol? Is it just some wooden statue that superstitious people uh, pray to in the temp in a temple or at home? I don't think so. I think Tim Keller nails it when he defines an idol as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And there are many ways to describe a kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. End quote. In fact, I'll argue that a common view of idolatry as committing spiritual adultery for Christians is probably un un understating it. You see, the thinking goes like this. The church is a bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. And so when we chase after another God, we are committing spiritual adultery. I think it's more than that. I think our problem is spiritual polyamory. We have multiple gods, just as we have multiple partners in polyamory. So sports, family, work, sex, money, even ministry in church and so on. They can all be our idols when we put them all together in the same box, in the same group as Jesus. And that's why when the Israelites spoke to Aaron in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, they spoke in a plural. Up, make us gods. It's plural because it won't stop at a golden calf. Once they have the golden calf, they will want other gods. Because as Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories. And it gets worse because while it's true that idolatry is sin, the reality is also that sin is often idolatry. Again, from Tim Keller, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. End quote. And so if sin is idolatry, I think it helps us to be able to see that the next few scenes that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 10 through the lens of idolatry. Well, firstly, Paul says in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. And this is the incident in Numbers 25, chapter 25, when the Israelite men fell for the Moabite women and were engaging in sex with them as part of their idol worship ritual. Well, sex, as God intended between a man and woman married to each other, is good. But it becomes sin. It becomes idolatry when we put it ahead of God, when we disobey God and indulge in sex outside the boundaries that God has set. And this is what the Israelites did. And worst of all, they, they did it as part of an idol worship ritual. Well, the second example that Paul gave was putting God to the test. He, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And this alludes to the incident in Numbers 21 where the people rejected God's manner. 
the Israelites were impatient with God in the wilderness and they began to grumble and complain about the food and drink. And Numbers 21 verse 5, uh, we read, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathed this worthless food. God was daily providing them with manna from the sky. And the people of Israel called that worthless food. They were testing God. Does God really love us? If He really does, He'll send us better food. And they're doubting the love of God, which is often the start of an excuse to look for someone else whom we think may love us more. And then thirdly, Paul tells us in verse 10 not to grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Well, we don't exactly know which incident Paul was referring to. It could be any of the incidents when the people grumbled and rebelled against Moses, as we saw earlier on, because they didn't like the food or because they didn't like Moses' leadership. But the point Paul is making is this. Don't grumble against God and what He has provided because our grumbling demonstrates a dissatisfaction in our relationship with God. As if you're wondering, is there another God out there? Perhaps who may be able to meet my needs better? Paul tells the church in Corinth in verse 11, Now these things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for instruction on whom the end of ages has come. The church back then in Corinth and the church today <coughs> were meant to learn from these examples. And Paul goes on to give a warning in verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed lest he fall. You think you're above all this? You think you're not tempted to worship idols or to indulge in immorality, to test God and to grumble? Be careful because your overconfidence, Paul says, will lead to your downfall. In fact, in verse 13, the first part, when Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. He's not so much saying, hey bro, we're all in the same boat. So don't worry, God will see us through. But rather, He's giving us a warning. Look out. Don't think you're above these temptations because they are very common and many have had to face them. And we are all very susceptible and very vulnerable to them. And that's why Paul's encouragement in the rest of verse 13 is so helpful. And I recommend you memorize it. Take some time to do that. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God may not remove the temptation or the testing of our faith, but He will most certainly provide a way of escape and strength for you to endure it. And then Paul reinforces in verse 14 the key point that he wants to make. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I said. Not my words, Paul's words. In conclusion, let me summarize what we've just learned today. And I've got eight points for you. Bear with me, they'll be short. One, the people of Israel were slaves to Pharaoh. And the Exodus event is a contest between God and Pharaoh to show who is the true king of Israel. The outcome of the contest is clear. God warned, hands down. Two, God's judgment falls on all, both the Israelites and the Egyptians. And only those who received His rescue will be saved. 
Blood is needed for the rescue, and this is provided by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Three, it was by God's sovereign grace that he chose to rescue Israel from bondage to Pharaoh, to free them from slavery to Pharaoh. Israel didn't deserve it. It's not the result of something they did that deserved God rescuing them. Four, a new community is formed as a result. The nation of Israel. And this new community is led by Moses as it's meant to serve the God who rescued them. But be warned, don't be presumptuous and, and fall into the sin of idolatry. Five, our lives today is also a picture of the Exodus. We are slaves to sin, but by his life, death and resurrection, Jesus has overcome sin and he's leading the new Exodus. Six, judgment falls on all. But those who accept God's way, way out will be saved. And blood is needed for the rescue. And this is provided by the sacrifice of Jesus, our Passover lamb. Seven, it was by God's sovereign grace that he chose to rescue us from the bondage of sin, to free us from slavery to sin. We don't deserve it. That's not a result of something that we did that deserved our being rescued. Eight, a new community is formed as a result. The church, that's what we call it. And Jesus, the better Moses, is leading this new community. And this new community is meant to serve the God who rescued us. But be warned, don't be presumptuous and fall into the sin of idolatry. And with that last warning, let me just close with this questions from David Polson, uh, who's a Christian counselor who just passed away in June this year. Let me quote him. That most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart has something or someone beside Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear and delight? To who or what do you look for life, sustaining, stability, security and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? End quote. These are good questions to consider. And as the Israelites settled into the promised land after the exodus, led by Joshua now, Joshua challenged them at the end of the book of Joshua in Joshua 24 verse 15. And I want to echo the same challenge today. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. And I hope your answer would be Jesus, the leader of this new exodus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.